just a little bit of inside baseball this morning. My goal or my intention was to just stay going chapter by chapter through the book of Hebrews. And we've done pretty good at that so far. We've done pretty well at staying sort of on task and not, uh, not getting too ahead of ourselves. And yet now this morning I find myself with... Uh, just, I was struggling all week with how to put all this together because the goal this morning is to cover all of chapter 8 and chapter 9 and half of chapter 10. And you might think, we're going to be here for a while. And maybe, I don't know, uh, but hopefully not. Um, but I love this section of Hebrews. And I think it'll become very clear why we have to keep all of this together because essentially this is sort of, this is, the kill shot. This is the great moment that the Hebrew writer has been building up to, I think, for this whole sort of, this whole time, all seven chapters that we've covered have sort of built up to what he is wanting to discuss right here. And these three or two and a half chapters, so to speak, he's wanting to bring them to this moment. He's been telling them that Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. He's better than this, that, and the other thing. Any sort of trinket of Judaism that you can take off the shelf, Jesus defeats and is so much better. The gospel is so much better. And we've seen the way in which that is true. And here he's going to lean into how. How is that true? I think that's sort of the purpose. The purpose of Hebrews has become, I think, it, it, it gets clearer and clearer as you keep going through it. He's just spent, as we spent a long time last week, spending time going through the fact that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And all of what that means and entails, the reason behind that, of course, is to show that he is the, the only Savior, the definitive Savior that every sinner needs. He's not just one among the rest. He's not just a, a, a good teacher or a good, a, a good and faithful priest who is just another in the long line of preachers and, and, and priests. No, he was God. Come in the flesh. Who has come in the flesh to fulfill, to bring about all that God has promised. And the chief thing among which God has promised, what we're going to talk about at length this morning, is the actual removal of sins. You see, this is sort of the fundamental premise around which the priesthoods, uh, the priests revolve. That was their ministry. That was their charge. That was their function within the house of Israel itself. Their entire job was to sort of uh, follow uh, the God-ordained method by which God's people could receive forgiveness. That's in a nutshell what the priests were supposed to do. How did they do that? Well, in the times of Moses and before, they would do that by following all the procedure of the sacrifices and the offerings and all the things that were supposed to go on in the tabernacle under the law of Moses. Leading the way, of course, was that ritual that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that comes about in Leviticus chapter 16 on that great day of atonement where the high priest would lead the people through a series of services and sacrifices. And the whole purpose of all of that was what? To show the people how they could find atonement for their sins. How they could find pardon. How they could find absolution. How they could find forgiveness. 
That's what the whole ceremony was about. That's what the whole thing was trying to show them. It was trying to convey that the only way that they could be forgiven, anyone could be forgiven, is when their sin was dealt with and when God's holiness is upheld at the same time. That's why you had all those different sacrifices and and the orderliness of all of that. It was all about answering that question. How can we, the people who have failed Jehovah God, be forgiven in the sight of Jehovah God? And actually, I would just say, I'll just say it this way. I think ever since the garden, Genesis 3, that has been the defining question of every single person's existence. How can I be forgiven or some variation of it. It might not be exactly worded that way. We might even not think about it in those specific terms. But essentially, if you boil down everyone's lives, it pivots around that question. How can I be forgiven? How can I be atoned? How can I find absolution? And how you answer that question. It's very defining in terms of how you think about life and, and, how you, and what you think about God. In general and in particular, how do you resolve the question of sin? That's, I think, the abiding sort of question that's in everyone's mind. That's sort of defining everyone's existence. Even though, again, we might not put it that way. We might not, those in the world might not call it sin. They might not call it forgiveness. But if you boil it down, even still, all of the... The pains and the wrongs and the hurts and all of the brokenness that we see all around us. It all leads us to look for something to fix it. We are all, everyone who has ever existed, those within and without the church, they have all existed under this this notion that these things need to be restored. There needs to be reconciliation. There needs to be forgiveness. And so some folks, they turn away from God and what do they run to? They run to politics. It's, it's absolution through political activism. Some people turn to financial security. It's, it's finding peace through the idea that they can secure their own means. Or some people turn to physical fitness. Some people turn to exploring pleasure and relationships. Some people turn to trying to find that lifelong career that fulfills them. That uh, hopes that maybe that's what's going to give them absolution. That's what's going to make everything settled. The point is, those things are not bad in and of themselves, but without God at the center, without what he has promised at the center of all of those pursuits, what do those pursuits do? They end up just becoming like pseudo-religions by which we hope to find peace, absolution, forgiveness. That's the history of man. The history of civilization is essentially a long and tragic history of mankind's failed attempts to solve the question of sin without God. That's the tragedy of it all. Because they, they know there's something wrong. They know there's something that needs to be mended. You can look at the, all of the pursuits of man and science and technology and mathematics and pleasure and even religion itself. It's trying to solve the question of sin without God. And my friends, that's a categorical impossibility. The question of sin can never be solved outside of what God has revealed 
And I would say that that's exactly what is shown to us this morning. In these three chapters, how is the question of sin resolved? Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, that's what, that's what they show us. That's what they reveal to us. Because there is no other way to God. There is no other way to find absolution other than the way, the truth, and the life that is Jesus himself. Jesus is the only one who can call you forgiven and actually mean it. He's the only one who can say, I forgive you and it's done. And it's true. You won't find that in anything else. Any other promise of absolution outside of what God has revealed? It's a fake promise. It's a phony word. You see, not even the priests could really and truly make good on this promise themselves. They were ministering in what? Just copies and shadows. The promise of forgiveness is only true in Jesus Christ. That's, sort of the, that's how I think we have to understand these chapters as we handle them together. Because as the writer is going to do, what he's going to do, he's going to expose the inability of that old way, the way of the priests, in which they brought people to experience that forgiveness. And in order to what? To showcase the superiority of the new way that is opened up to us in Christ. The priests of Levi, they could not in and of themselves cause anyone to be forgiven. Why? Because they lacked three things. They like three things that I think are revealed to us in these chapters that I want to take you through this morning. This, first of all, the first thing that they lacked, number one, they lacked the unassailable presence. The unassailable presence. What does that mean? Well, I'll, I'll get there in just a second. So at the beginning of chapter 8, the, the writer of Hebrews, he starts and he, he somewhat summarizes what he's been talking about for the last several chapters. Notice verse 1 of chapter number 8. He says, the point... You can see, he says, now the point in what we are saying is this. He's basically, to sum up what I'm talking about, to sum up what I'm trying to get you to see, it's this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. That's what he's been contending for. You have the priests of Aaron, you have the priests of Levi, you have the priests of Melchizedek. This is what he's been trying to say. Jesus is the high priest that we have been looking for. You see, I love how he words this. He's not giving them things and words and phrases that are up for debate. These assertions are not up for grabs. He says, we have a high priest in Christ. It's undeniably true that for the church, for the redeemed, for those who believe in that precious gospel, it's a matter of fact. It's not sort of a question mark. It is a matter of fact that you have a high priest in Jesus. One who ministers in the unassailable presence of God. What do I mean by that? Notice verse number two again. He says, a minister in the holy places. Notice this phrase, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Of course, 
This is clarified in verse number 5. Notice verse number 5 where he says, They, he's talking about the priests, and he's talking about all of their services. They serve as what? A copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And then he references it. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." See, the writer is here taking him through that this tent, of course, he's talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about that moment where all of the people of Israel were introduced to the way in which they could worship this God, Jehovah God, Yahweh, the one who had delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. How would they do so? They do so in this tent, the tabernacle, which, as he says, was meant to be a pattern, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And all of the priest's business was conducted there. All of their activity, all of, all of their, their services for the Lord as they brought the people into that service was conducted where? In that tent. It was all carried out there. Why? Because that's where God's glory was. Elsewhere, in the book of Acts, chapter number 7, Stephen calls the tabernacle a wonderful name. He calls it the tent of witness. Which makes us ask the question, what is, a, what is the tabernacle, what is this tent a witness to? I think the answer is found in chapter number 9 of Hebrews. Notice verse 1 of chapter 9. Turn over there. He says, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. He's talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about the law. We had regulations. We had things that we had to do and follow. There was a procedure. He says, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand of the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. In which, the go- in which was a golden urn holding the manna. And Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He's saying there's too much that I can even talk about. I can't even go into it all. But he's giving them, he's reminding them of what? Of what the tabernacle looked like. There was this place that was called the holy place. That's where a lot of the priests would minister and serve. There would be all these different sacrifices and altars and washings that had to take place there. And then even further in, that was the most holy place. The holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Where only on one day a year could the high priest go in. And what is it all a witness to? What is all of that tent, all of the, the different furniture, all of the different furnishings, all of the utensils, all of the different ornate design of what that tabernacle was supposed to evidence was what? It was an evidence to the presence of God. That's what it's showing them. This is where you commune with God. The tent of witness was basically just a visual representation of God's presence, Jehovah's presence, in, with, and for his people. So, as such, the priests, they serve the Lord on behalf of the Lord's people in the presence of the Lord himself. But this is key. This is really important. Every element of that tent was what? Nothing but a copy and a shadow of that presence and glory of God. 
Again, notice, remember in verse 5, he says, make it after the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Here's the instructions. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's how you make this sort of, uh, this thing that resembles the presence and the glory of God. Of course, God's glory resided in the Holy of Holies. That's why only once per year could the high priest go in there. That's the Shekinah that was in that place. But it was only after what the pattern that God had ordained It was a copy. It was a shadow. All of that changes with Jesus. You see, because in Jesus, what do we have? We have the true tent of God. Go back with me again to chapter number 8, verse number 2. Notice again, he's talking about Jesus, the high priest, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent. See, that's what Jesus is. He is the embodiment of what? God's desire to tabernacle with us. Can I use that word like that? Yeah, I can. Because John does. John chapter 1 verse 14. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Where he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the, as, as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Dwelt is a word which literally means to tabernacle. You see what he's saying? You see what John is saying? You see what the Hebrew writer is saying? Where the, the, in the, under the old way, you had a pattern, you had a copy, you had a shadow, you had a resemblance of the presence of God. In Jesus, we have God in full bodily presence right here in the flesh. He is the glory and the presence of God with skin and bone over it. We can say that God the Father in Jesus Christ pitches his tent of glory with us. That's who the person of Jesus is. That's who this high priest is. And just as the tent of witness was prepared as a testimony to that presence of God, so too is Jesus' body that. It's the true tent that, was, that is prepared for us as the epitome of God's glory. It's the unassailable presence. Notice with me chapter number 10. Look at verse 5. See what he says here. See what the writer is contending. He says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, when Jesus came down as a baby and took on the form of man, notice what he says. He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Notice verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. You see, the tabernacle served as a pattern, a copy. Of God's presence. But in the gospel what? We have Jesus. The full. The final. The actual realization of that presence. With us. In the world. That's what he is doing. That's what he is fulfilling. He is fulfilling and living up to. All of what that tent was meant to, 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 to point us to. To prefigure. Jesus is neither copy. 
nor shadow. He is the true thing itself. Hebrews 9, look at verse 23. Notice what the writer says. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's what Jesus is, my friends. The substance of God's presence in you, with you, and for you. That's who Jesus is. As Paul writes in the book of Colossians, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the true substance, belongs to Christ. He is the greater and more perfect tent in which he performs all of his priestly service. Hebrews 9.11, notice that's what he says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Oh, my friends, that's what we have in Jesus The actual presence of God, who upon his priestly service, his commission was what? To, yes, function as our high priest. And that's what he does when he goes to the cross, that most holy place of the cross. You think about the same sort of the, the same sort of structure of that service. The high priest goes into the holy holies once per year and pays for the sins of the people. Jesus goes into the presence of God, yes, in the form of his body, and ascends into the most holy place of the cross, where he pays for the sins of the world. That's what Jesus is. That's what he offers, the unassailable presence of God in the form of flesh. This reaches back to what he's been arguing for from the very beginning of this whole book. And that's why he can offer That's why Jesus offers what no other priest could offer. Because he is the unassailable presence of God. But also, number two, also because he is able to establish the unrepeatable sacrifice. Number two, the unrepeatable sacrifice. The writer reminds us back in chapter number eight. Chapter number eight, look at verse number three. He reminds us of the priestly service of all these priests that are in that tabernacle where he writes, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Part and parcel of this ministry of the priest was, again, bringing the people through these gifts and sacrifices. That was their regular habit. Almost their daily function was to oversee all of these services, oversee all of these sacrifices, and ensure that they're being conducted and followed according to the letter of the law. This type of offering was for this sin, this sacrifice is for this sin, and so on and so forth. It was a continual Thing that they ministered and they served in this way. Chapter 10, look at verse 11. He says that. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. 
over and over again. The priests under Moses, the priests under Aaron. They were administering all of those rites and those rituals. They were leading the people through all of those sacrifices. And with each goat that was slaughtered, there was another one right behind it. Which each, which each, with each lamb that they, were, that they brought into that tabernacle, that they brought there to be slain, to sort of serve as a copy and shadow of their forgiveness, there would be one right behind it. A never-ending line of animal sacrifices. As these priests daily, uh, repeatedly, supervised those services, which were told, again, verse 11 of that same chapter, never took away sins. Verse 11 again, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Never truly. It did it as, again, as a copy, as a pattern, as a shadow. As a foretaste of what was to come. But it never did it truly. It never did it actually. Look at verse number 1 of the same chapter. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities. It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He is reminding them of, the, of this very plain logical fact. If what those priests were doing with all of that blood of bulls and goats actually did what, what they promised to do, they wouldn't have to keep doing it. The fact that these sacrifices were repeated over and over again is what? Proof positive that these sacrifices by themselves couldn't make people perfect. It couldn't actually deliver. Sacrifice, essentially you could say, the writer is saying basically that sacrifice all the bulls you want, kill a million lambs, and you will never, you will never, that will never do anything to actually take away your sins. Because it's not, it's not in that blood of the lamb, that blood of that bull. All of those sacrifices were nothing but copies. They were nothing but shadows. Of, they were pointing us to what? A better sacrifice that was to come. There was not one ounce of power in the blood of all those bulls and goats. Otherwise, they would have ceased. He says that in verse 2. They would have stopped. We wouldn't have to keep doing it over and over again. The power of those sacrifices was found in what? And what they pointed to. Again, that one day there was coming a lamb. A better lamb. A truer lamb. Whose blood would actually bring deliverance. As the writer is saying, that's Jesus. This is what Jesus has accomplished. This is what he has, has fully achieved when he offered up his body uh, for the sins of the world. Notice chapter 10 verse 11 again. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But notice this. But when Christ 
had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified. You notice the contrast? Same sacrifices repeated over and over again. The priests of Levi, the priests of Aaron, they were always doing the same thing. Offering bulls and goats to point people to the forgiveness of Jehovah. And yet, what do we have in Jesus? The actual presence of God. He brings about an unrepeatable sacrifice. One time, single offering. Single offering, he sacrifices himself, and then what? He sits down. A sign of what? No more need. No more need to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Because his sacrifice is that good. It is that sufficient. It works for all time. It's an unrepeatable sacrifice. It is, once for, it is a once for all time offering of blood. How is that possible? How does that work? Because Jesus offers Himself Again, verse 10, and by that we will have been sanctified through what? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Wonderful phrase, once for all. He did it. Once for all time. This is what makes Jesus a way better high priest, a more superior high priest, because when our high priest enters into that most holy place of the cross, he offers himself as the sacrifice for sin. On that wretched tree, what happens? You have this mysterious melding where the priest and the sacrifice are one and the same. It is Jesus, our high priest, offering himself. Notice chapter 9, look at verse 25. Notice what he says. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. That's not what Jesus came to do. He did not come to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood that's not his own. For when Jesus, or for when he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, what good news, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages for what reason? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's good news. You want to talk about gospel. You want to talk about something that can truly fill you up with the goodness of God. It's this right here. It's the very fact that our high priest didn't look for some other blood to pay for your sin. He sheds his own. Chapter number 7, at the close of that whole argument, what does he say? Chapter 7, verse 27, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. What great news, that Jesus, in his sacrificial death on the cross, it works. And it works both backwards and forwards. His sacrifice is the actual realization of what all of those animal sacrifices were pointing to. 
That's what they were trying to be copies and shadows of. And so he it works eternally backwards to cover all of those people's sins and to inform their faith. And it also works eternally forwards because Jesus' sacrifice on that cross, it stretches about to bring salvation to the uttermost. Yes, even for your great-grandchildren who haven't even been born yet. Once for all, sacrifice on the cross. It's true in Jesus. It's an unrepeatable death. And this is true, why? Because of the blood that was shed there. Chapter 9, look at verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11, again, awesome. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he answered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of the goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, yes, that sacrifice of those bulls and those goats, it was good to cleanse the man because it pointed to what Jesus would one day do. But Jesus, he doesn't just merely uh, sort of pacify the problem of sin. He solves it. Jesus solves the problem of sin in himself by shedding his perfect blood for it. That's the good news of the gospel. You can see then why he is so adamant about this for this church. To go back to anything else, to go back to that old system of sacrifices and offerings of what they were tempted to do. To go back to Judaism is to spit on the sacrifice of Jesus. It's to say it's not good enough. It's not, it was not actually good enough to save. Not actually good enough to solve the problem of sin. Looking then to anything for redemption, for forgiveness is foolish. It's illogical and it's a slap in Jesus' face. Because the perfect blood of Jesus has been shed to cover an infinite amount of of sin, There is no sin, my friend, no sin that can be committed that is outside the parameters of Jesus' forgiveness. That's what he has come to offer, eternal redemption through the unassailable presence of God that here then enacts an unrepeatable sacrifice. Jesus' blood is that unrepeatable sacrifice spread over the world. And those who believe past, present, or future, they find forgiveness in this one, this Jesus. Which leads me to the last thing that these priests couldn't offer. And what Jesus fulfills, not only an unassailable presence, not only an unrepeatable sacrifice, but also number three, and lastly, an unimpeachable promise. An unimpeachable promise. The shedding of blood... Of course, was the sign. It was sort of this stamp of approval that whatever was promised would come true. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of this in chapter 9, look at verse 18, where he says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. 
So it's one thing for Jesus, or excuse me, it's one thing for God to tell his people that I will atone for your sins. But to make true on that promise, what happens? A lamb is slain, and that blood sort of serves as God's signature, God's stamp of approval, that that promise will come true, that he will forgive. Notice verse 19, continuing on. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the, the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, notice this, there is no forgiveness of sins. The gist of all of those rituals, all of those sacrifices, was all about leading the people of God to what? To receive the forgiveness that only God could give them. But again, those rituals were just copies and shadows. Jesus is the reality. And that's why it's so significant that when Jesus, leading up to his sacrificial death on the cross, he repeats those same words. Did you, did you notice that in verse number 20 of chapter 9? <laughs> this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. It's exactly what he says at the Last Supper when he's partaking of communion with his apostles and he breaks the bread and he passes the cup. And what does he say? This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you were a historian of all of that awesome scripture, alarm bells would be going off because you would be saying, this is what he's doing. He's trying to hint at, this is what's going on. Here's what I'm accomplishing. I'm accomplishing what all of those priests were only doing in a copy of, as a pattern. He's inaugurating the new covenant. And what does that mean? Look at chapter 8, look at verse 6. Hebrews 8, 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better Why? Because it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be their my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see what he's saying? This is what Jesus has come about to establish. He's quoting Jeremiah. You can read the same verses of Jeremiah 31. It's the promise of the new covenant. That this is what God was going to do with Israel and with Judah. And here's all the new blessings that are going to come about when that new covenant is established. What's a covenant though? 
It's a solemn agreement between two people. And when you enter into covenant with someone, it's to swear on your life that you will live up to what you have promised. And again, as we noted a couple of weeks ago, what makes God's covenant, what makes his promise different is that he swears on himself. He's the one that's going to make this promise true. That's why he says it's enacted on better promises. Not if you fulfill your end of the bargain, Jesus will do this. No, he is fulfilling both. He's making the promise and keeping the promise of his own accord. And so what is this new covenant that Jesus establishes by the shedding of his own blood? When he says that at the, Lord's, at, at the Last Supper with his disciples, he's referencing Moses, he's saying it here, and he's establishing this new promise. That God would forgive sin, as he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus has shed his blood. Therefore, it's logical to say, there is forgiveness of sins. And true forgiveness of that. Because all the offerings for sin have stopped. Go with me to chapter number 10, look at verse 18. Notice what the writer says. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Where there is true forgiveness, the offerings and the sacrifices, they cease. Otherwise, you would have to keep them going. But as it is, we are the church, we are those who believe... No more sacrifices, no lambs. Thank God I don't have to slit the throat of a lamb on Sunday mornings. (laughs) We don't have to keep doing that. No more bulls, no more goats. Why? Because your sin, my my friends, your sin is absolved. Period. It is covered under the blood of an unrepeatable sacrifice. That's why this promise is so true. It's an unimpeachable promise. It cannot be swayed. It cannot be wavered. It cannot be questioned. Jesus has solved once for all the problem of your sin and my sin and the sins of the whole world. And he's taken it away. As the psalmist says in Psalm 103, he removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Or as the book of Isaiah says, he casts our sins behind his back. No, even better. In Micah, he says that he has cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Even better, he remembers our sins no more. Chapter 10, look at verse 17. He says, he's quoting again from Jeremiah. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds No more. He says that again in chapter number 8 as we just read. He says it again in Jeremiah. He says it again in Isaiah chapter 43 verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Did you hear that? You want to know how good the promise of the gospel is? The sins that you can't seem to forget are the ones that Jesus chooses not to remember. I will no longer remember your sins. Actual removal 
of sin. That's what Jesus does. That's what he comes to establish. That's what he comes to bring about to his people. That when he removes your sins, he takes them as far away as he can. He takes them and he forgets them because they are covered under the blood of his very presence. The unassailable presence of God that is achieved through that un, uh, unrepeatable sacrifice. And now we have this unimpeachable promise that we are forgiven. My friends, when God casts your sins into the depths of the sea, he doesn't go diving in after them to bring them back up again. (laughs) They are buried. They are forgotten. They are covered under blood. That's what Jesus establishes when he says this is the blood of my covenant. He's signing and sealing and delivering the fact That you are forgiven. That's how sure it is. Forgiveness is not this sort of amorphous thing that you hope you have to do enough things in order to receive it. My friends, your forgiveness is a fact because of what Jesus has done. And when you forget that, what are you to do? Remember where your forgiveness is found. If the devil ever tries to tempt you that "Mm, you're messing up, you're screwing up. This, I don't think Jesus can pay for this. You keep doing the same thing. You keep going back to the same problem. When the devil tempts you with that, you know what you can tell him? My sins were already paid for 2,000 years ago. Take it up with him. My sins were covered there. Take it up with the actual presence of God. Because that's where your sins are covered, my friend. When you pray to God to forgive you, You're not unlocking a secret compartment of God's forgiveness. The Spirit then informs you of what? Of where your forgiveness is found. The most holy place of the cross. That's how sure it is. That's how confident you can be. So I asked the question, as we asked at the beginning, where are you going for absolution? And maybe you don't think about it in those terms. You say, that's not really I'm after. I'm after this, that, or the other. We disguise our quests for forgiveness in other means. Careers, families, relationships. But when all that pretense is gone, the deepest need of every human being is the exact same. Forgiveness that reaches your soul. From Jane Doe to Adolf Hitler. That's been the need of every single human being. We just look for it in a bunch of different ways. We look for it in a bunch of different avenues. No one can forgive themselves. You know, I did, I did a little experiment. Have you ever messed with that artificial intelligence thing, ChatGPT? It's, it's kind of fun. It's kind of scary, but it's also kind of fun. You can type in anything and it can give you all kinds of crazy stuff. If you look in there for pop songs... That contain the lyrics, forgive yourself. You'll get a long list. I think that's, that's not just something by, that happens by accident. It's not by accident that the common refrain in the secular world is what? Just forgive yourself. You sing about it all the time. Tons of songs in the past talk about just, just forgive yourself. My friends, you can't. If anyone tells you just to forgive yourself, they're offering you bad advice. 
Because there's only one place where forgiveness is found. It's in that place where your sins are remembered no more. It's in that place where Jesus died and shed his blood for you. That's where forgiveness is. Whenever someone is looking for something to fill that life, that void, where they are looking for absolution, where they're looking for peace, where they're looking to finally find some place where they can say, oh, thank goodness I am forgiven. May we always and ever point them to the cross. See, this is why Jesus is a way better high priest. (laughs) He's done all of that once for all. Once for all time, he has achieved eternal redemption. My friends, when you walk out of here this morning, walk out knowing that you're forgiven. I think sometimes, and I'm, I'm getting off script, and I know you have stuff in the crock pot, I'm sorry. You know, I think why we sometimes walk out of the church doors and we're, we're grimacing Because I think we still think that we have to white knuckle our forgiveness. That we have to do something to make it real. My friends, you are forgiven, period, in Christ. When you walk out of here, you can know that. I think that should make everyone joyful. You want to know what the joy of the Lord that reaches down? You want to sing that song. What's that old kid's song? You know, the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where is it? Down in my heart. Where? You know what the joy of the Lord that's down in your heart? It's the forgiveness that reaches your soul. That's what Jesus offers. There is no better news that the church should ever share other than that is forgiveness. That's what our business is. You know what the church's business is? The church's business is to be about the business of telling people where forgiveness is found. That's what we're doing. That's what our goal is. That's what our job is. That's what my job is. Every evangelist ever has the Maybe I'm, I shouldn't say it. Every evangelist ever has the most easy job. Just tell people where to find the forgiveness. It's in Jesus. It's in this high priest who took your place, who shed his blood, and now it's settled once for all. And you are forgiven. That's God's promise to you, my friends, today and every day. Live in light of that promise. My friends, enjoy your forgiveness. Let us pray.